John's book, the one that we're in, is the story of Jesus. It is the story of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, that he walked among us, and he came for us because he loved us. And we're into week 13 of this sort of expression of love that is the gospel of John. And it's different than all the other gospels, right? Because John is just concerned with telling us that Jesus was God and that he loved us and that he came for us and he wants us to see Jesus in all of his deity. And so he's not interested necessarily in telling a historical narrative of the person of Jesus Christ. He's interested in telling a divine narrative of Jesus. And so we've been exploring this gospel with that in mind. And my whole goal as teacher, preacher, whatever, is just to have you see Jesus, right? So that's, that's it. Well, we're into week 13. And we started a, a section a couple of weeks ago where Jesus is going to be having encounters with people. People that are going to point to his deity. And these are not perfect people. They're kind of broken people, a little messed up. Some of them have histories and backstories. And they are going to, through their interactions with Christ, point to the divine nature of who Jesus is. And we're in the middle of one of those stories right now. We started it last week, and it's a very famous story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We've divided it up into three weeks. We looked at the, the interaction last week, tonight, tonight, or this morning, I guess we're going to talk about some of the, the sort of nuances of their actual exchanges, the dialogue that they had, and then next week we'll see how it changes the people around them. But just to catch you up to speed real quick on the narrative, um, Jesus was gaining a lot of momentum in terms of his ministry, and the Pharisees were beginning to take note. Um, he was out there in the wilderness, and his disciples were baptizing people, and the Pharisees took note that Jesus was actually having more of a following of people than John the Baptist. And the Pharisees had kind of been paying attention to John the Baptist's ministry because he was gaining so much notoriety, and that made them really nervous, right? Because they didn't like these religious movements kind of gaining momentum because it threatened their very way of life. And so they heard that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness and he was gaining momentum. And so they were sort of paying attention to that. And then all of a sudden things shift and Jesus and this small little band of disciples is garnering a ton of attention. And they're starting to baptize people. Jesus' disciples are baptizing the same way that John was for repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. And they were getting a lot of people. And the Pharisees took note of this. And John chapter 4, as we begin this sort of encounter, tells us that Jesus was aware of this. And so he and his disciples, they left the region, right? They left the area of Judea and they went up to Galilee, right? And so you've got to understand a little bit about, um, well, they got to understand a little bit about geography to understand kind of what's going to happen with the story of the woman at the well. So in ancient Palestine was about, ancient Palestine was about 120 miles long and there were three main pieces. There was Judea to the south, Galilee to the north, and right in the middle there was a giant region called Samaria. And the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans at all. In fact, they hated them because they were a product of inter-race marrying when the Assyrians kind of conquered the northern kingdom some centuries before. They had disobeyed the laws of God, the Jewish people, and they had intermarried with the Assyrians, and they created a mixed race of people. And the Jewish people to the south didn't want anything to do with them because they would make them unclean. Literally, if they encountered a Samaritan, because they were a mixed race, the Jewish people thought, uh-uh, that's going to make me ceremonially unclean, and they wouldn't have anything to do with them. In fact, they wouldn't even walk through Samaria for fear that they might have an encounter with a Samaritan person. So if you were going from Galilee to Judea or from Judea to Galilee, you would literally go about 20 miles out of the way, cross the Jordan River, up, up on the east side, and then back around to get north into Galilee rather than walk through Samaria. It was, it was wild. 
John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that Jesus went right through the heart of Samaria, just traipsed right through it. And he shows up at this town, and there's a little well outside of this town. It's actually still there today. It's Jacob's well. You can actually go and see it. It's one of the only authentic, really authentic kind of non-debated places in all the Holy Land because you can't really move a 120-foot well, and so they know right where it is. And, and Jesus arrives at this well, and he's tired from his journey. He sends his disciples in to buy food, and it's noon. And he's waiting there in the heat of the day when a Samaritan woman comes up, and he looks at her, and he says, can you give me a drink, right? And she says, how can you ask me for a drink? Uh, you're Jewish. I'm a Samaritan woman. It was a valid question because the Jewish people didn't associate with the Samaritans, right? And she was a woman, and no good-standing Jewish man would speak to a woman, much less be alone with a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. And on top of that, he asked her for a drink, which means that her hands were going to touch the water vessel that Jesus would touch and put to his lips, which would make him unclean. And last week we talked about how unbelievably cultural, an unbelievable cultural disaster that was. Like no good Jewish person would have ever done anything like that. And Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in those things. We talked last week extensively about how Jesus thought differently and lived differently than culture and what that should mean for us. But he does. He asks her for this drink, right? And she says, sir, how can you? And Jesus replies by saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would be asking me and I would give you living water. We left off there last week, and we're going to pick up right there this morning as Jesus explains to her, continues to try and explain to her this eternal perspective about living water and what that means. And she's stuck in this temporal, worldly mindset. And we're going to look at about four dialogue exchanges that they have, and I'll do it kind of quickly, uh, that they have that really shine light, I think, on a lot of our misunderstandings of exactly what our needs are and what Jesus came to do. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 4. Um, we're going to pick up right there in verse 11 um, this morning and pick up in the middle of their exchange. And before we do that, let's take a moment. Let's pray together. God, I love you, and I love this church. It's an imperfect group of people, God, but we are, we, we are committed to seeing you move in your word. God, we believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. We believe in the whole of Scripture. God, we believe that you teach us through Scripture, that you reveal yourself through scripture. And so God, we don't take our time in your word lightly. So we ask you to teach our hearts this morning, to instruct us. Lord, we know that we can't discover you on our own. We know that we won't be able to define you. God, you reveal truth. And so Lord, we have to have you reveal truth for us to even understand your character. So Lord, teach us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something. I don't know what that is, but just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This entire thing on Sunday morning is not about you. And so, Lord, we want to pray for each other. So pray for someone. Pray that God would move in them. Um, even if you don't know their name, just pray that God would do something in their hearts. <coughs> Lord, we ask that you would teach us, instruct us, convict us, challenge us. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates, as you say, even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. God, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. God, your word is your breath. And so, God, teach our 
lives this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is having this encounter, right? He has asked her for a drink, and the the woman has said, how can you? And Jesus, as we wrapped up, says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would be asking me, and I would give you living water. And this is how she replies, verse 11, and we'll read down through 26. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go and tell your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you do have a husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And he declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet there is a time that is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So there's a bunch of different exchanges in here that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman. And I'm going to briefly look at them because I think they're incredibly telling. They're incredibly telling about her understanding of what Jesus is explaining and her desperate and deep need that Jesus is trying to show her. And it almost, as we read this, we see the disconnect, right? We saw it with Nicodemus and Jesus in chapter 3 when, when Nicodemus says, you know, uh, hey, Jesus, I see you're a great teacher. And Jesus says, hey, look, if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean born again? Do I, I crawl into my mother's womb? And Jesus was, of course, talking about things of eternal nature. And, and Nicodemus was stuck in this sort of worldly understanding. Well, this conversation actually echoes that same thing. And the first exchange that we see really is surrounded by this woman's question, where she says, sir, right, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. She's looking at him going, you don't have a bucket, a rope, a utensil. This well, as we know from history, is about 120 feet deep. Where are you going to draw this magic water from, right? She's looking at him going, living water where you don't thirst, you have nothing to draw with. Are you greater than our father Jacob, right, who gave us this well and has gave it to his sons and their flocks and their herds? Basically, what she's looking at Jesus saying is, sir, who do you think you are? And that's really what she's saying. She's going, look at you. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. Do you think you're really better than Jacob? I mean, Jacob, who dug this well, right, who found this well, who fed his children or gave his children water from it and whose flocks came here and has been here for thousands and thousands of years, gave it to us. Are you better than him? Because in her mind, no one was better than Jacob. He was a father that they believed, right, was from God. And a sacred spot there. Who are you? 
is what she's essentially asking Jesus. Who do you think you are? And Jesus' reaction to her is, is fascinating. Because when he looks at her and he says, he says, listen, everyone who drinks of this water, right, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It will become like him a wellspring of water leading up to eternal life. He says, listen, you want to know what the common thread is between Jacob and his sons and their flocks and herds and the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of livestock and people that have come to this well? You want to know what the common thread is between all of them? They will all come back tomorrow. They will all be thirsty again, right? Whatever that next day is, they will be here. This well will stand, but all of those people will be thirsty again. It's the very nature of life, right? When we drink water, we're satisfied for a moment, but we have to return to the well because without water, we will die. This well that you are standing at, you're right, is from Jacob. And Jacob was a great man. He gave it to his sons, right? All part of God's incredible redemptive story. But the common thread is that you're going to be thirsty again. That if I draw water from this well and I give it to you, you will thirst again. But he says, listen, whoever, right, drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That welling up is a fascinating Greek phrase. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament, all right? The other two are in the book of Acts. One is in Acts 3, one is in Acts 14. Both of them are used to, the, to express the leaping up after you've been healed. So Peter has this encounter with a cripple outside the temple gates in Acts chapter 3. You may remember we went to the book of Acts uh, quite a while ago. Um, but you remember that encounter. When Peter stops and he looks at him, he says, Silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And it says that the guy leapt up. It's the exact same phrase that Jesus is using here. Right? You fast forward to Acts 14. Paul's walking on one of his journey. He comes across a guy who's crippled, and he looks at him, and he says, you're healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In the exact same phrase, the man gets up, and he runs, and he praises God. The same phrase is used. He says, the water that I give you, right, will be like the spring of water leaping to life, leaping up to eternal life. Do you see the imagery that Jesus is using there? That when we give our lives to Christ, when we allow him, that life-giving energy, that pulsating energy that springs to life from us, that takes us from death to life, from sitting to standing, right? From laying down to running and dancing. This is what he's explaining to this woman. He goes, as long as you draw these earthly things, you're going to be in want. But what I can kind of give you and supply to you will change your life entirely. It'll take you from being crippled to alive. It'll take you from death to life. It'll take you from longing, right? Constant longing to being satisfied. It'll take you from restlessness to peace. It is the leaping up that pulsates through your veins. It is living and active and life-giving water. And I started thinking about that as I was thinking about my own life in Christ and just how different that is than how I feel as a follower of Jesus, right? Because most of us as followers of Christ, man, we live in this circle of mediocrity. It's a cycle, if you will, of mediocrity. And we spend so much time just trying to break the cycle, and I think the reason is because we don't understand what we've been given through Christ. That we don't understand that what we've been giving is this springing to life that leads somewhere incredible, right? Eternal life, we all think, begins when we die. The truth is eternal life begins right this moment. John 10.10 10 says that Jesus came to give us eternal life, an abundant life that begins today. True, real life. 
And he's looking at this woman saying, you come here every day and you draw water for your temporary need and I stand in your presence to give you something so you will never long again. Right? A wellspring, a jumping up, a springboard into true life. And I'm reading that going, man, I've surrendered my life to Christ 20-something years ago, gave, gave him my heart, and yet leaping to life and joy is not how it described me. Right? Just trying to make it and get by and break the cycle of mediocrity. Man, if this is true, right? If what he's explaining to this woman is true, it should change everything. Because if we really knew what it meant to be saved, to be delivered from death, to be delivered from certain sin, death that leads us to eternal separation from God, we have been given new life, and yet we walk around this earth disappointed with the majority of our life. And yet we've been given living living water as followers of Christ. A living water that leaps through us like a crippled person springing to life for the first time. Do you remember in Acts 3, those of you that were here when we studied that, what happened when that guy that sat by that temple gate for all of those years, 40 years, right? When Peter stopped and gave him life, remember what he did? He sprung to his feet and he raced into the temple. And it said that he was running and dancing and screaming and praising God. And everybody came over to see what was going on. And they couldn't believe it because the guy they had walked by every day was now dancing and running and shouting and praising God because this wellspring, right? That should be what our lives in Christ are marked by. They should be marked by this wellspring of life. Do you realize where God has taken us from and the promise of Jesus, what it gives us? Not just something to look forward to when our 40, 50, 60, 70 years are over. But when I wake up and I open my eyes and I draw breath, the life that I have today is that living water, right? So he says, she says, sir, right, sir, who do you think you are? And Jesus replies essentially is, I am, I'm the living water. I am life, right? So then they have the second interaction where she says, sir, give me this water, right? So I won't get thirsty and have to come here and draw water anymore. So, of course, they have this other sort of miscommunication, right? Jesus is talking about these internal incredible things about life and never being thirsty and and welling up to eternal life that we're longing for something greater, but we've been given full abundant life here now every day. And she says, give me that so I don't get thirsty and don't have to keep coming back here. And to really understand what she's asking, I think you've got to pay attention to the second part of her question, right? The second part of that question says, Give me this water, right? Not only so I don't have to thirst, but so I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water. Now, last week I talked about this quite a bit, and I'll just kind of briefly do it again. But we know a lot of things about this woman, actually. The text actually tells us some things about her life and her place in her community and in her culture. And she was a significant outcast. She had a life that was somewhat of a mess, Right? We know that here because Jesus basically looks at her and says, Look, I know you're not married. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband either. We also know that she's drawing water at noon alone, which didn't happen. Culturally, women went together to these wells. They would walk outside of the city. They would travel in the morning in a group, and they would draw water. And they would come back in the evening and draw water for bathing and all those things. And it was a social cultural event in which they would all go together, and they would draw water from a hundred-foot well, fill each other's jar, and return back to the community. It was part of their role. 
Well, this woman on some level is relegated to the shadows. Instead of going in the morning with the community of women, she comes at noon alone in the heat of the day. She's been somewhat outcast, ostracized, pushed to the margins. And every day when she comes and draws water, probably twice alone, she's reminded of her, of her life, of whatever failures there are, whatever hurts there are, how she's been pushed, the shame that she has, the mistakes that she's made, and who she's been called and labeled as. You got to understand that because that's not a making up part of the story. That is true, and it's in its pages. She is a mess, and she is marginalized. And the community has taken her, and they have pushed her aside. And I guarantee you, every waking moment of her life, she is remembering how she's marked. And so she says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming back here. Because every time she came back here, she was reminded of her failure, of her failed marriages, of the guys she's been with, or who she's even with now. There's a lot of pain in her life. And a lot of hurt in her life. And Jesus is telling her about a water that would keep her from having to come back and deal with it. And she says, sir, essentially this, sir, make my life easier and less painful. That's basically what she's asking Jesus. Sir, make my life easier, right? I don't have to be thirsty and make it less painful. That's what she's really asking him. And then Jesus does something remarkable, Right? He looks at her and he says, go and call your husband. Come back. And she says, well, I, I don't have a husband, right? And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. The guy you're with now is not yours. Or he's not your husband. It's really powerful because Jesus asks her to do the only thing she can't do, right? He knows the answer to the question that he asks, he knows her situation. This is God in the flesh, right? He does this miraculous thing where he tells her her story. He's never met her before. Yet he asks her to do the only thing she can't do. He actually does the opposite of what she asks. She says, sir, make my life easier and less painful. And Jesus does the only thing that would make it more complicated and more painful. And he asks her to go get her husband. He actually does the opposite of what she's begging for. But Jesus doesn't do it, right, to make her hurt more. He's doing it to show her her desperate need. See, she's still thinking about water that would make all of this easier. And he's thinking, I want you to see your need for what I am offering you. This echoes you and I so much, right? We come before God and we say, God, make my life easier and less painful. And we cry out to God and we ask all these prayers and we shout them out and we say, give me this. God, please remove this. All the while skirting the questions that we know we need to ask. And what does Jesus do in the middle of that? He speaks to a hurt. And he does it in the way that only Jesus can. He says, I want to show you how you need me. And I want to show you how what I give you will change everything. And I look at that and I think, that's not what I want from God. I want God to give me just what this woman asked for. I want to have an interaction with him that doesn't cost me much, but makes this thing a lot easier. I don't want God to ask questions 
about the stuff I don't want to deal with. I don't want God to ask questions about the stuff that I don't trust him with. I don't want God to ask questions and all these things that I've hidden and pretend don't exist. Those are off limits. Over here, smoke and mirrors, right? But what does God continue to do in our lives and all through scripture? He continues to walk over here and go, no, no, no. Let me stick my finger in here. Because until we trust him, fully trust him, peace, right, will always be elusive. Pain will always be real. As long as we're dancing over here saying, no, easy, and God's going, I want to deal with your need for me. Jesus wasn't trying to hurt her. He was trying to show her how much he would heal her heart if she opened it up. And they have this incredible interaction, right? Well, she doesn't like it at all, right? Neither would I, and neither do I. But she says, sir, right? This is the third interaction. Sir, you're right when you say, or she says, you're right. You see what happens. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we worship is in Jerusalem. So she does one of these. She's like, not over here, over here. Remember theology, good stuff about worship. She totally distracts. I see that you know what you're talking about. You're a prophet. Okay, I get all that. You saw it in my life. But let's not talk about that, right, over here. That's really what she does. She's diverting the attention away from her personal life and onto something that she's probably concerned with, but really is more of a theological question. And Jesus sort of plays along, right? She says, don't deal with this stuff. I've got it, okay? You deal with what you deal with over here. You're a Jew. Explain this to me. And it was actually a a question about worship, and it was actually a bigger question about theology. And she says this, sir, tell me this. Who's right? Us, the Samaritans, or you, the Jews? Because the Jewish people who won't have anything to do with us, mind you, tell us that the only place to worship is in Jerusalem, right, in the temple. But we Samaritans believe that we worship here on this mountain. And right there by the entrance to Jacob's um, well, was a pretty large mountain, if you will, and it was Mount Gerizim, and it's a place that the Samaritans worship. Now, the Samaritans, you got to understand, you got to understand a few things about them. You got to understand that they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all the prophets and all the writings and all the other Old Testament scripture. They didn't believe it was real. They believed in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed in those, but anything outside of that, they rejected. Okay, so it wasn't just about location of worship. It was actually about theology. So you Jews believe you have to worship God, the God that you know and talk about in Jerusalem. But we Samaritans believe we worship the God that we know and talk about here on Mount Gerizim, right? She doesn't really make a question in there. It's more of a statement distracting from this whole, I don't want you to talk about my personal life and stuff over here. But I do want to know the answer to this question because it's, a pretty big one with our cultures. So Jesus plays along, essentially. And he says this, he says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on that mountain in here or in Jerusalem, right? He says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for, your salva- for salvation is from the Jews. And a time is coming and is now come when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, a lot of us have read that passage for years. And we assume that what it means is that location of worship doesn't matter. Right? God is spirit and we can worship him neither in the, we can worship him in the church, we can worship him in the park, or we worship him in my house. And that is 
true, but that's not really what's unfolding here, right? Worship location, right? Because Christ now becomes our access point to holy God. We no longer have to go through the holy holies of the, of the temple. Christ is our access point. Worship location is somewhat meaningless, true. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, the time is coming when it won't matter, right? Because he is the access point to holy God. It won't matter if you worship here or there. But you, then he says something incredibly pointed to the woman. He says, but you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know, right? The Jews, they worship what they do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Because Jesus himself was a Jew, and he came from the line of David as the Messiah was coming from the Jews as the Savior of the world. And he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. See, the Samaritans believed, right? The Samaritans believed that the Pentateuch was the expression of who God was. Those five books. But the prophets and the writings and all those, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't do that. They didn't believe in them. Yet the whole expression of Scripture is how we understand God. It's how God reveals himself to us through the prophets, through the writings, through all those pieces. And Jesus basically looks at Samaritans and says, and says, you are worshiping what you don't know. Right? God has revealed himself through the prophets and through Scripture, and you're worshiping a God who you refuse to believe in, in his totality. But the Jews, they may have misunderstood it and blown a lot of it, but they understand who God is in nature. And he says, those are who God desires, spirit and truth. And he talks about understanding God in his fullness. We do this a lot, man. We really do. We create a God culturally that we like. We create a God culturally that fits into our paradigms. We pick things out of Scripture that we like, and we ignore the things that we don't, and we create a God that meets our needs. It's like worshiping a God we don't know. Sadly, a lot of Christians actually believe the Old Testament is outdated. It's just a collection of stories. The truth is the Old Testament and the New Testament are the collective redemptive work of God through humanity. You cannot understand the New Testament outside of the Old Testament. You cannot understand God's redemptive plan for humanity outside of understanding and knowing God of the Old Testament. It is the same God. And he is redemptively at work, which means we cannot ignore parts of Scripture to get to the parts that we like. We cannot ignore the things that make us uncomfortable culturally, and create a God that fits into all of our social paradigms. When we do that, we worship a God we don't know. Scripture points us to the nature and character of God. And this is what Jesus is saying to her. You don't get to create the God you want to worship. You don't get to create that God. God has revealed himself and expressed himself through the whole of Scripture, right? And God wants us to worship him in spirit and truth, which means it's not about the legalistic forms and places and locations and songs and liturgies, but it's a condition of our heart. Worship is a condition of your heart. How did you walk in here this morning? Did you walk in here hoping to stand in front of the presence of almighty, holy, majestic God, or are you frustrated about something else and brought all that garbage in here? Worship is a condition of our heart. It's an understanding of who we are in comparison to who God is. And all through Scripture, when people realize that, they find themselves on their face in worship of holy, majestic, mighty God. And we have created 
a God that is our friend, that fits into our paradigms and our boxes, that we pull out when we need to, when we call on when we need stuff. But other than that, he stays there. I show up on Sunday morning to worship a God who stays there. But what I do through my week, how I work, what I do on Friday is what I do with my whatever. It's not part of my expression of worship. Worship is a condition of our heart. It's not something we do on Sunday mornings. If you think worship is confined to this hour and 20 minutes, you are not reading Scripture. Worship is how we live. It's a spiritual act, a moment in our heart that says, God, I am in desperate need of you. It's what Jesus is showing this woman. He's saying, look, worship doesn't take place here or there. It's when you recognize your deep and desperate need for me because of this mound of garbage that you've got that I want to redeem. Right? When you realize that God wants to redeem that mess and step into the middle of it, our only response is worship. Instead, we dance and throw a lot of smoke and mirrors over here and say, look at my Christian life, and we wonder why we're restless, and we have a lack of peace, and we live in the middle of mediocrity. Because worship doesn't begin until we understand that we need to be saved from our garbage. And that the God of the universe will walk right into the middle of it. And he'll ask the questions that are hard and that are painful, not to hurt you, but to show you your need. And worship begins there. And she says, uh, yeah, that's great and all, but I know the Messiah is coming, and he'll tell me uh, about it. Basically, goes, I hear what you say, but um, I'm going to wait on the Messiah because the Samaritans believed the Messiah was coming too, but they only stood to, understood the Messiah in terms of the first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they believed this Messiah's job was to come and answer difficult questions. And so they said, "I," she said, "I don't like your answer, so I'm going to wait on the Messiah. He'll tell me." And Jesus looks right at her, and one of only two times in all of Scripture before he stands trial before Pilate, he looks at her and he says, it's me. I'm right here, right? And that changes everything. In fact, next week we're going to see her drop her water jars, run back into town, and it is going to change the lives of the people around them. You know, I don't, I'm not altogether that different than this woman. There's a lot of my life that that begs for things to be easier, that begs for things to be less painful, that begs for God to come in and, and make things work without having to deal with the difficult things that I know that God is calling me to let go of and be free from, that I want to dance and show God all the hard work that I'm doing while hiding all the things that I know he wants to speak into the middle of. That's a lot of me. And then when God says the things that I don't want to hear, I distract him with other things, or at least that's what I think I do. But look, over here, God. And God keeps going, no, right here. I want to show you how much you need me. And for years, I played that game with God, right? I think a lot of us are in that place. And we don't like the answer that we come up with, that God asks in the middle of it. We say, well, I'll just wait. I'll just keep praying. I'll just keep asking. Eventually, it'll go away. No, eventually it won't. Your desperate need never leaves. The God of the universe steps in the middle of it and says, go get your husband. Or, why don't you trust me? Or, do you not believe that I'm big enough to handle all of that too? He asks those questions. And I believe that the Lord is asking us, probably you directly, some of those same things this morning, right? And we look at him and we say, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? Make my life easier and less painful. 
Whatever those things are, I, I encourage you to deal with them. The longer we leave them in this giant pile over here, the more mediocre our life becomes. We were created for this wellspring of life. This table that we celebrate, communion as we celebrate, is that expression, man. It is the expression of a God who loved you so much that he, he died for your sin and garbage. And this table is a reminder of that. It is not the habit of the Christian life. It is not something that we just gather together to do nonchalantly because we should. It is the expression of where worship begins. Worship begins with the fact that you were in desperate need of a Savior to die for your sin. Worship begins with this table. It begins with understanding this is what the God of the universe did for you and for me. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that all of his friends would desert him, all of his disciples would flee, on the night that he would be handed over, essentially to be put on trial and crucified days later by the very creation that he made, by the very creation that he breathed lung, life into their lungs. He gave thanks and he took bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took a cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. As long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming my death till I come again. This table is not a denominational table. It is open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is a celebration of what God has done and a reminder of where worship begins. This table is an expression of our deepest need. So this morning as we celebrate it, we do it by means of intinction, which means as you come down or in back, we'll have two stations, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat it. We invite you to spend time in prayer as Don and our worship team lead us, riding your heart before the Lord, and then when you feel called and ready, come up. We also have gluten-free uh, communion here. Just tell your server and we will take care of that for you. But let's pray together and then we will uh, begin this time in worship and communion. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and it is living, and it is active. And God, I confess that there's so many things in my life that I don't want to deal with. There's so many things that lurk in the shadows, trust issues, fears, failures. God, you speak in the middle of all of them. You are a God who redeems and restores. You do not desire for our lives to be mediocre. You desire for us to have this wellspring, this leaping up, this death to life, this running, this dancing, this incredible, overwhelming joy because you have rescued and redeemed us. God, you desire for the place of our worship to begin as a place where we understand what you came to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hear our cry this morning. And we celebrate this together. It would be a reminder of our deep, our deep need for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite our servers to come forward.